Hello and welcome to another episode of our program, Develop. I am so excited to present to you and continue uh, that series that we've begun about the ministry of discipleship, being a discipler. And today we're going to look at the idea and the concept of the challenges of discipleship that we encounter. You have heard me speak about the idea of the Great Commission that we're all familiar with, that Jesus, before leaving planet Earth, He commanded His disciples to go and make disciples and to teach them to observe everything that Jesus had taught them. He commanded them that they would baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they would become a new identity, people who die to themselves and live in in the newness of life. Live the Jesus life. Discipleship is this, is the idea of us seeing people come to know Jesus authentically, accepting the Holy Spirit as they repent of their sins, as they accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, but it doesn't stop there. They live the rest of their life living the Jesus life. They say, you know what? Yes, we have been, uh, you know, uh, changed and we've been transformed in a position now that we're accepted before God. But we want to allow our transformation to actually take effect in our daily reality. So they keep on growing and they develop and they uh, represent uh, uh, the, the type of life that Jesus died and rose again to enable his followers to live. Not only that, they discovered Jesus, they develop in Jesus, and they invest in other people so they too can live the life of Jesus on earth. So if that's the commission that Jesus gave us, why isn't it so prevalent in our society, in our churches, in our leadership environments as Christian people? Why is it so challenging to start and sustain a discipleship movement in our world today? And my gut feel is that the enemy has distracted leaders, churches, and Christians from giving their life for the one thing that matters most. Why? Because he knows if we invest relationally in people, if we model the life of Jesus, if we support and challenge them to live that type of life, within 35 years, maybe the world will be one for Christ. Would you think the enemy would sit there and say, yeah, you guys go ahead and do discipleship? Of course not. So he distracts us rather than say, hey, don't do the Jesus commission stuff. He, he can't convince us to do that. So he distracts us. And that the greatest distraction, in my opinion, is he enabled us to look at ministry with a different view. He distracted us from the real type of ministry that Jesus introduced. He gave us a, contra, a, 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 a different type that we now think of effective ministry in a way that is inconsistent 
with the scripture. And I want to share with you three things that I've noticed in my own personal observation of Christian and churches, in my own reading of research, and obviously in my own experiences in the ministry. Three things, three myths that we accept as the effective ministry which distracts us from giving our life wholeheartedly for the ministry of discipleship. And the first one is the ministry should be exciting. How many of us don't say that out loud, but we believe big is God. You know, if something is big, if something is exciting, if something is like a, a huge event with big healing, with big people, with music, loud music, smoke, action, we believe that's where God is. I recall hearing a sermon by Pastor Andy Stanley from North Point Church in Atlanta, the USA. He said, people mistake the presence of God for loud music, smoke, and light. Isn't it true? Whatever is exciting, we're attracted to that. We just want to do that which feels good. That which exhibits, uh, you know, an emotional response in us. And I bet that nobody actually thinks about that and decides to distract themselves from the real business of God because they want to enjoy an emotional experience. It happens because we're conditioned rather than we deliberately do that. I recall meeting with a, a leader uh, in, in a particular church that I ministered in and he tried to take time with me monthly to intimidate me from communicating the ministry of discipleship. He says, who gave you that vision? Where did you get that vision from? All I wanted to say to him, listen, this is the only vision that God gave his church. What they wanted to do as leaders, as esteemed, kind leaders, is they wanted to grow their church. They wanted to create that buzz. And they wanted to create an environment where people, you know, join, uh, you know, whether it's a production or whether it's a carnival or whatever it might be it's the stuff that attracts people and makes the church seem alive and there is momentum and everybody is excited but is that really what effective ministry is is effective ministry a matter of excitement the second thing I think the enemy convinced us with is that effective ministry undoubtedly has people's endorsement. At least has the religious people's endorsement. At least has the church's endorsement. So we try to uh, figure out what is the path of least resistance. What can we do that attracts people's approval, that attracts at least removes people's resistance of us and removes the way people may pick on us, accuse us and trouble us. We're looking for endorsement and say, you know, if it's, if it's from God, it will be endorsed. Well, Jesus's ministry was not endorsed by religious people. Paul's ministry was not endorsed by religious people. You know what? The world Paul, as he says it, the outside world and the inside world of the church did not endorse his ministry. The last thing that we think is that ministry that is from God must be easy because God anoints it and God enables it. So what do we do? 
We want to do the ministry that flows out of ease for us. So we confuse our calling, which is being disciples, with our giftings, whatever that gifting is. Why? Because in the space of our gifting, we sense an element of flow. And when we remove from people, when we potentially preach or, or teach or, or, or even just pray from afar to people and we don't do the, the one-on-one, we don't do the small group proximity, it's easier than all the repercussions, all the risks, all the betrayal that we may experience if we did life closely with other people. And what's the result of this type of ministry? Well, you probably already know. You probably already know that the church isn't going far. But I'm not going to just tell you that from my own experience. I want to share with you just an extended quote from Pastor Edmund Chan in his book, Certain Kind. It's a book about disciple making. He is a a minister in Singapore who uh, was a senior pastor in an incredible church for 25 years. And he's a global mentor and a disciple maker who is founder of Intentional Disciple Making Churches. And, uh, and the intention is to see million people come to live a life that is genuine and a discipleship oriented. That's what he says about the kind of Christianity we currently have. He says, chronic spiritual infancy is the ecclesiastical norm, superficiality, Immaturity and carnality characterizes many Christians. Many church members do not grow towards spiritual maturity, much less reproduce spiritually. The focus of the church has shifted from making disciples to merely making converts. In spite of all the well-intentioned ecclesiastical slogans, and disciple-making mission statements on church walls, we have not engaged in the Great Commission intentionally and passionately. Intentional disciple-making is the exception rather than the norm. It's the exceptions rather than the norm. Few go beyond mere rhetoric to actually engage in intentional disciple making. The results are not very encouraging, but we can turn the tide. If we honestly, at least those who have accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord and decided to live wholeheartedly for the Master, at least those of us who have experienced the benefit of being in a relational environment where we can keep each other supported and accountable. If we have only experienced that and we just uh, don't do anything about it, it, it's going to fizzle and it's going to die. And the mission of Jesus one day will be, will be just uh, uh, basically slogans. But imagine if we would commit wholeheartedly not only to benefit from this uh, brand of Christianity, Christ-likeness and intentional disciple-making and relational one-on-one on a small groups matter of modeling the life of Jesus and teaching the life of Jesus and partnering with others. Imagine if we gave our lives to that. What would happen? And we have an incredible example in Paul. 
an, ex- an, an incredible example in Paul in all of his ministry. But particularly today, I want to focus on the Apostle Paul and the Galatians. The Apostle Paul and the Galatians. The reality is Paul had written this letter to the Galatians, uh, potentially mid-40s or uh, 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 late-40s or, or, or mid-50s. We're not 100% sure whether this Galatians is, is the northern uh, area or is it the, the southern uh, province of, uh, um, of uh, Roman province. What, what is it exactly? But we know it's uh, one of the very early letters of Paul, whether uh, First Thessalonians came first or Galatians first doesn't really matter but it was really immediately after Paul uh, started to reach out to the Gentiles and uh, his ministry was becoming so incredibly anointed by God that many people who weren't Jews accepted Jesus and uh, you know embraced the life of Jesus and became part of the Jesus movement. Uh, however, uh, Paul, having uh, you know come from a Jewish background, but received uh, you know the the gospel to f- of freedom to all people, not just to one ethnic uh, group. Uh, Paul had a lot of enemies from the Jews and the Jews or what you call the Judaizers who believed that Jesus is truly the son of God. But they wanted people not just to become Christians. They wanted them to be a cult of the Jews. So they wanted them to be circumcised and, and to follow the law of Moses be, be, before they live uh, a life for Jesus and be accepted in the family of God, the covenant family of God. Uh, they went to Galatia and started to con- confused the people and said to them, you have to be circumcised. Sure, Jesus died for you, but you need more than just Jesus. You need circumcision. You need this. You need that. And, and Paul was fuming. Paul was fuming. And instead of saying, you know what, let's find common ground. Let's not fuss over, you know, uh, technicalities. You know, they, they love Jesus. We love Jesus. Let's just move on together and, and not create any havoc. No, no, no. Paul stood his ground even if he stood his ground alone and said the gospel is too precious. The discipleship movement that Jesus came to give people to live freely under the banner of God's love but to live under his love in such a way that represents Jesus to the world. I am going to live for that wholeheartedly even if I am alone. So I have learned and observed three things that may enable us to live wholeheartedly for the mission that God gave us, just like Paul lived wholeheartedly for the mission that God gave him. And I believe that will enable us to start and sustain a wholehearted endeavor to see the priority of Jesus expressed in our own world. So let me share those with you briefly. And let's start from Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 22. It says, Paul says, I want you, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, 
that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man because they were accusing him to not be really an apostle. They were hurting that his message by trying to make him look like an illegitimate apostle. So he's saying, you know, you, you, you really uh, didn't see Jesus. You really didn't live around Jesus' time. So we don't really believe what you have to share. And Paul defends his apostleship and says, I did not receive my gospel from any man, nor I was taught it. Rather, I receive it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem, that's where the apostles are, to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus, which is about three years later. Then after three years, I went, uh, actually, he returned to Damascus. We don't know how long he spent in Arabia, but after he returned to Damascus, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, and, which is Peter, the apostle Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. And then he says, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, that accepted from us, let them be under God's curse. He's not mucking around. He's saying, this is the way. Don't be tricked. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And the first thing that I learned from Paul is that we value God's approval above people's applauds if we're ever going to focus and give our life wholeheartedly for the mission that Jesus asked us to invest in, not just what everybody wants us to do. We value God's approval above people's applauds. This is a trick that we as disciple makers may subtly fall into thinking, well, if people approve us, isn't it really an indication that we're living a life for Jesus? And it's a trick that the enemy puts us into. Where it's like, well, if they don't like you giving a bad name for Christ, that is not true. That is not true. If you're living the truth, they may not approve of you, but they conscious know that you are a person of Jesus. So Paul decided that he's going to pursue God's mission because he didn't care what people said about him. He didn't care whether people approved him, applauded him, enjoyed his, his, his sermons or whatever it might be. He valued God's approval above all else. You know what? Where did he learn to value God's approval? In obscurity. In Arabia, where he went after his conversion in Acts chapter 9. And, and again, we hear that he, he went to, back home to Tarsus and he stayed there for some years in a place of obscurity, away from the limelight. Paul learned to value God above everybody else. You see, the problem is many a times we love the limelight. 
and we love people's, you know, what people say about us and the credit they give to us. Where do we learn not to care much is when we learn to value God most. When God's value becomes so important to us and every lime light goes fading behind the scenes, guess what? We learn to value God and therefore enjoy His approval far more than we care about people's applause. The first thing you and I need to let go of the limelight and all the magic that comes with people applauding us and giving us credit. Don't worry about that because if you value God enough, His opinion matters most. And every disciple maker needs to make it their their absolute desire not to be excited by ministry but to be excited by the presence of God ministry is not there to excite you ministry is there so that you can be grateful to the love and being besotted by God Almighty that you will do whatever he desires you to do the second thing I want to share briefly is when uh, Paul says about Cephas, which is the apostle Peter, it says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James was the head apostle, so to speak, in Jerusalem, was like the leader there. He used to eat with the Gentiles. Peter was actually dealing with the Gentiles as if they're perfectly fine. But when those people coming from Jerusalem arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, which is the Jews, the Judaizers. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish custom? He stood for against Peter and his hypocrisy. And that was what Paul did all over the place. He stood for the truth, for the calling that God gave him. And we see that even in Galatians chapter 3 says, You foolish Galatians, that's not a nice greeting, is it? Who has bewitched you? Who has tricked you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? You see, what we learn from Paul here is that we've, he valued the integrity of his calling above the comfort of compromising. Peter and even Barnabas, who is partner with with Paul compromised because they were afraid. They were scared what people will say about them. So they compromised their very calling, their very conviction. But Paul said, if I will stand, even if I stand alone, because I know God called me to the Gentiles. I know God called me to this true gospel. I will not relent. And when the, Gen when, when the, when the Galatians uh, moved away from the true gospel, he did not stop and say, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to tell them the truth. He actually said it as it is. He did not compromise his integrity in order to gain their approval. He did not compromise his calling. 
And that's what happens when people go through the ups and down of life. You know why we do not want to engage in this intimate discipleship experience? It's because people, when you're close to them, you realize they go up and down in life. And, and, and when they go up and down in life, it hurts when you find out that you are helpless. You can't do anything to assist them. So what we try to do is to remove ourselves from people and their spiritual development. Because man, they got to church. They attend church. They do good things at home. They volunteer in a not-for-profit organization. Guess what? We are so easily willing to compromise our conviction in order to not upset anybody so that we don't get upset and we don't upset anyone else. But you know what? Paul took the risk of upsetting them. You know why? Here is how he goes. He says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did, not, you, you did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I was an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. That's early on. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Have I become your enemy? You see what happens when we avoid confrontational uh, 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 conversation with the people that we disciple, when we're trying to move away from the intricate uh, involvement in people's life and partnership with people's life. You know why? Because we're too scared what happened to Paul would happen to us. You know, people may early on from far away or when they start their spiritual work, they might think you're an angel from God. You're a blessing. But then when you tell them the truth, all of a sudden you turn like an enemy. So what do we do? We say, stuff this. I don't want to get, uh, you know, hate mail. I don't want to get become unappreciated. I don't want to become anybody's enemy. I just want to leave them to do whatever they want. And we let go of partnering with people and seeing them through the spiritual ruts, the up and down of life. See why Paul risked this, the relational difficulty, is because he saw himself as their parent. It says, my dear children, from whom I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I'm going to give it my best shot until Christ is formed in you. How I wish, he says, that I could change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. He was deeply invested in them. That's what discipleship is. You're deeply invested in someone's character transformation into Christ's likeness. You're not satisfied that they are, oh, you know, they are believers now. They sign the paperwork. Oh, yeah, they doing a good job you you basically unwilling to invest because not because you're worried about them you worry about you you worry about what will happen to you if they're gonna all of the sudden not appreciate you or all of the sudden not gonna give you the credit that they initially gave to you so we want to be at an arm's length so we could avoid being hurt or betrayed but Paul took the risk because he was mature we learn like him to value the pain of parenting above the ease of entertaining. You know, 
Paul actually took his spiritual job as a disciple maker really genuinely to heart. Just like a parent can't say, oh, my son or my daughter is doing a bad job. I'm just going to ignore them. I'm never going to talk to them again. You can't. You can't be unparenting. <laughs> Once you're a parent, you're always a parent. You're invested in the people. And Paul says to, 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 the, to the people in the Corinthian church, he says, who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly pain. Guess what? Paul realizes it's going to be a roller coaster time. When people are on top of life, he's, that's their, his joy and pride in them when they're walking with Jesus wholeheartedly. But he knows they're going to come a time when they are collapsing, when they are being led astray, when they're being weak. But he decided he's going to be on a roller coaster with them. He's not going to be just out there on the stage. He's not going to be out there in a safe area. He's not just going to be there, you know, clapping people on the side and encouraging people on the side. He was going to live in the thick of it. He was going to brave the roller coaster. And I believe if we're going to know the value of discipling people and the impact that will have over their life and our life, we're going to brave the roller coaster and be immovable. The good time come, the bad time, you're not going to jump off the roller coaster. You're stuck there for good. And you are energized by being besotted by the Savior. You're so in love with Him that you're willing to do whatever He asked you to do. You're not there for excitement. You're energized not by the excitement of the ministry, but by the glorious Son of God. You're going to give Him your every bit of life. You're dedicated to Him. Secondly, your expectation that discipleship is going to be hard. It's going to be like a roller coaster. Good times, hard times. It, you might be scared, but it's also fun at the same time because you get the joy of being with your heavenly dad and his family on a roller coaster. And finally, you're not doing something for today. You're not doing something for the impact of tomorrow. You're doing something with a long-term view, with an eternal reward for you and those people that will be discipled because you have put your hand to help them. You have held them by the hand in good times and bad times. You will be rewarded when your heavenly father looks at you in the eye and says, faithful son or faithful daughter, you've been faithful in the little. I will raise you over much. May the Lord enable us not to be distracted by excitement, or by endorsement of others or by ease, but may we embrace the roller coaster because it may be scary, but you don't jump off it because you know it's going to be fun and it's going to bring glory to God and good to His people. And that is our prayer for you, that you would invest in the one mission with every fiber of your being because you know it will change the world for Jesus and He is worth it. God bless you. Look forward to seeing you next time. Mm -hmm.